Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Hey, Restitutio listeners, over the last year or so, a few people have asked about donating. I just wanted to let you know that we finally have a system in place for this. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit restitutio.org. And we've got a donate menu option now. Okay, now for today's episode. Today, we are going to hear part two of Joshua Anderson's Announcing the Kingdom Evangelism class. His topic is, What Evangelism is Not? Evangelism is not forcing a decision, converting people, condemning people's sins, or arguing endlessly. This material is critical for us to grasp so we don't get frustrated or stuck in ineffective methods. We do well to keep in mind that whatever your evangelism system is right now, or isn't right now, it's perfectly designed to keep getting the same results. Do you want to see different results? Then you have to change something. I think you'll especially enjoy the story that Anderson tells about sharing the gospel with one particular young lady who eventually became his wife. Here now is episode 316, What Evangelism is Not, with Josh Anderson. I want to share now about some issues about what evangelism is not. Some things evangelism is not. Well, obviously it's not selling something, right? It's not being forced and non-relational. But it's also not getting people to try to make a one-time emotional decision. Now sometimes, and all the things I'm about to say, by the way, I should preface this, I was like, evangelism is not this. It's not that. Well, sometimes it is. <laughs> okay? Right? God can save people however the heck God wants to save people, whenever the heck God's going to do it and what means. Right? And he does it however he's going to do it. Right? Like, I heard stories of when we were in China of this woman who found a track on the train as she was going out to take the exit to go to the place where she was going to throw herself and kill herself. She found one of the church tracks there just sitting on the train. God used it, she picked it up, she went to that church, and she's an incredible leader in the church now. God can use whatever. He didn't even, in that case, nobody even preached to her, <laughs> right? Except maybe the angel who dropped that track out of somebody's bag, or whatever happened, you know? So please take what I'm saying here. I'm not saying don't ever do this, right? I'm just saying primarily, evangelism is primarily not this when you take that and make that your only method and focus. It gets out of balance, right? And it's not primarily trying to get people to make a one-time emotional decision. You know, as if Christ himself gave his life and died and God sent his very son just so he could fill a giant church of people who made a decision one time. And that's it. No way! It's more holistic. God's concerned with your whole person. You see, to make a decision is about your will. Your will. But as a human being, God made you with a lot of different aspects. You're not just your will. You also have your desires. And God wants to redeem those too. The things, he wants to redeem the things you love, your loves, your desires, your beliefs, your intentions, your habits. All the whole, when salvation means to be made whole. It's that Hebrew concept of shalom, of whole wellness. And he wants, he cares, when he brings salvation, he's wanting to save all of you. Not just focus in on one bit, your will, just to make a decision. 
Now, sometimes you make a decision and, and then your beliefs begin changing later, right? That, that, and, and that's right, that does happen. But we should be focused on the, all the other aspects because guess what? Sometimes you can evangelize people just by speaking to their desires and their loves. What is it that you love? And speaking through them, through, through their affections and through beauty, right? Or through worship or through other things, not just only uh, the will. Yes, this focus on just decisions. You know, I talked about a guy at UCLA, but also another time when we were in Japan, we had a group of people uh, as we were on the beach, and these guys came up and they asked us, hey, we're baptizing people on the, on the beach. You know, we're missionaries, and we've been here for like three days, and, uh, you know, we're just here for this week, but we're baptizing people, and we're just, they're just walking, like, down the beach, finding Japanese people and asking them, can we baptize you? If you know anything about Japanese people, what are they going to say? Do Japanese people ever directly tell you no? No, they don't. <laughs> it's very frustrating for a Westerner, you know, like a uh, Southern dude like me who wants like direct speech, right? Tell me what you're saying. Tell me what you think. T give it to me straight. Say what you mean and mean what you say type stuff. Japanese people don't value that. Instead, they value the harmony of the social like wa more actually than my personal truth. So hard sharing the gospel there because they will... They care more about the group dynamics of reading the room and the embarrassment of saying directly no than they care about living the actual truth of what they actually believe. It's become so hard to evangelize, right? So you get issues like this where the guy's walking down the beach and he asks them, and they're not going to tell him directly no. Japanese will never tell you directly no. They'll go around and they'll say, oh, wow, the water's so cold, isn't it? It's so cold, though. But they won't tell you no. I won't be baptized. <laughs> So what's this like white dude come in there like a bull in a china cabinet? And what does he do? He's baptizing. He's like, we already baptized 100 people. <laughs> and uh, he was like, you, you need to be baptized too. And we were like, dude, I've already been baptized, man. That's okay. And he forced, no, you should be baptized. Again. I was like, dude, no. I don't mind. I'm not Japanese. I said no. <laughs> right? And uh, he went on. And But you know what? They probably had an awesome letter they wrote about the hundreds that were gloriously baptized on the beach in Japan. But us missionaries who lived there, who took the time to become all things to all people and get to know the culture and get to know inside of their minds and things, know that they don't have any understanding of what he's saying when he said the word baptism. They don't know what the word means. He said he was going to do something and they stood there and then he did his little done. They don't know what was happening to them. They got up and they didn't understand it. They don't know who God is. When you say the word God, they think kami, like any sort of spirit in the earth. They're not thinking a big God. I had people, when I talk about Jesus, they would say, Isn't, wasn't he Santa Claus' son? <laughs> like this is the level of back, cultural background that, that they have. So when you tell them about Jesus, God's son, they don't have a concept of sin and like we do. They don't know what baptism, they don't know, they don't have any. See, if you just focus on make a decision, Ripped out of the context of your, what do you believe? <laughs> what do you know? Is that evangelism? It can't just be focusing only on the decisions. You have to be more holistic. Number two, evangelism is also not just converting people. 
And you're like, wait, what are you talking about, Josh? <laughs> That's what we're here, right? That's what we're here for. <laughs> or converting people. What are you, some sort of crazy liberal guy? Not converting people? Well, what I mean is that part is not your job, right? You can't change them in that sense. In the same way, if anyone has struggled with, if you know, you have like a very severely alcoholic family member. At the end of the day, you cannot change them. It is their choice. And for, I dealt with this with um, my own wife, who was a non-Christian when we first started dating. I actually dumped her <laughs> because I, I loved her so much, and she's insanely beautiful. I'll just show you pictures. Uh, and I, love, I, just, I loved her, but I knew that I could not be with someone for my life if the very deepest part of everything that I hold dear she doesn't share. And the Bible specifically says, don't be unequally yoked. So I broke up with her, but I prayed for her every single day for the entire summer for three months. And when I would talk to her about the Lord, you know how 2 Corinthians says that there's like a veil that blinds their minds? And they, they cannot see? I would talk, when I could talk to her about anything, when I started talking about Jesus, it was like her eyes just kind of cleared a little bit up. I could almost see her putting on the spiritual earmuffs and blocking them. And now, all of a sudden, everything I say isn't making any sense. <laughs> and I cannot get through. The Bible uses words to describe the pre-Christians. I call them pre-Christians, not non-Christians. <laughs> it describes them as being blind, being deaf, being dead. And there is no amount of power that you can use to go out there and raise the dead. God has to do it. They have to do their part. God has to do his part. And you do your part. But you can't do God's part. And you can't do their part. It's not your job to convert people. And when you mix that up, that's when you start getting in the screwy places. Like the guy that in the first case, he's trying to convert me. He's trying to do my part for me. Pressing, pressuring, pressuring. Say the prayer, say the prayer, say the prayer. Yeah. The Bible says that in John 6 that no one, uh, I had a big text, but for time's sake I'm just going to read, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. So the good news is God is drawing them. Jesus said he'd be raised up and then he would draw the whole world into himself. He is spiritually at work at them. What their job to do is to stop resisting. Their job is to stop resisting because God says that they already have in Romans 1 that they're suppressing the knowledge of the truth. That what is true of God is plain to them already. And they can already see it in the things that are made. But what happens is we, it says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They are pushing it down and not thinking about it, not, not believing it. Their job is to let go of that and to just allow themselves to be carried by the Spirit and wooed to the Lord. And He will work on them and give them. It's, faith is described as a gift. God is working in them. God is miraculously doing that. If you were told, um, that if you felt like God told you tonight that you were supposed to go to the graveyard and go out there and raise someone from the dead. Not everybody, not some awesome thing, just one. <laughs> um, what would you do? Like, wh who would you bring with you? 
And what would you do? Seriously. You go, you go out there, and you're supposed to raise someone from the dead. What would you do? Go alone and bring a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Would you bring the praise team out there? You think that would help? You know? Yeah. Probably about the only thing you can do is start prepping it by doing what work you can do, by prepping, by digging maybe. But guess what? At the end of the day, it's going to have to be God, isn't it? And what you're going to do is you're going to get on your face and you're going to say, God, there is nothing that I can do to make this person go from dead to alive, but I can only pray. I make myself available through prayer. And I could do some of the pre-work, Lord, like digging up a little bit of the dirt so there. But at the end of the day, Lord, it is on you. I, but I can pray. So I prayed for my wife every single day for three months. And she finally agreed. Okay, fine, I'll come to like one fellowship meeting. <laughs> and what happened? I saw, I got to see the veil begin to peek, peek through. And I saw her eyes begin to clear. Literally, I'm, I'm talking like biologically, they looked clearer to understand the words that we're saying and to begin listening and asking questions. And it was like her entire countenance became changed with light. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever witnessed this? Incredible, beautiful, miracle. You cannot make that happen, but what you can do is you can pray. <laughs> And you can do is the work of getting the shovel and the digging and the bits that you can do. But my only point here is don't confuse of trying to do God's part of it because that's when it'll get messy. Third bit, it's also not the same, same point, not convicting people of their sins. I've been saying it's not uh, primarily making people to get to a forced emotional decision point. Uh, it's not primarily your job to do the conversion part. Um, and then now I'm saying it's not primarily evangelism now. Evangelism is not primarily convicting people of their sins. And I probably don't have to say this <laughs> so, so much, but uh, in part of the country where I am, we see tons of these guys out with their signs. Um, you guys have those guys here? No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's all over the place where we're from. They'll have, they'll have giant signs, and there'll be whole groups of them, and their signs will say the most interesting things. <laughs> um, like, if Jesus said, if you ever looked at a woman, that's, you know, lust, and you're going to hell. And uh, I guess, and they'll just get, they'll go down to the, what's our Dixon Street, which is on our, we live in College Town, and that's like the main sort of college bar strip. And they'll get out there with all the young kids going by, and they're all walking from bar to bar. And uh, these guys, week after week after week, are out there with their signs, trying to basically shame all these people into the kingdom of God <laughs> uh, by sort of yelling at them and confronting them and stuff with their sins. And I don't understand if they think. And I asked them. I was like, so have you ever like, seen somebody gloriously fall on their face and repent of all their sins? Like, ever. Has it worked? And uh, this guy, was, to his credit, was honest to tell me, you know, no, I've never seen that. Um, but we're out here just being faithful. 
Because it's not about, it's not about us. It's about being faithful to God. And I agree. To the, I, I agree that you do have to be faithful to God and let God take care of the results. That's right. But guys, we don't want to just be only faithful. We also want to be effective, <laughs> right? Because we can't just say, look, it doesn't matter what all the fruit is. God brings the fruit and I'm just going to do this. Um, we can't fully separate that out because there are cases we can think of where people are just bashing their head against the wall with a method that isn't working. And is, is using an ineffective method again and again and again, is that faithfulness? Right? I think we need to stop and pause not just them, but us too, and ask ourselves, is what we are doing working? <laughs> because if we don't change anything, guess what? Our system that's in place here at this church, at every church, whatever your organizational structure is, your organizational structure is perfectly designed to keep getting the same results you are getting right now. It is like a fine-tuned machine to get the same results that you're getting right now. If you want there to be a change, we have to ask, what should we do different? And if you're going to ask, what do we do different? You want to think, how can we be effective? So we, do, we can't just say, let's all let God bring the fruit and I'll just be faithful, I believe. Because um, I don't think that is a form of full faithfulness. And so these guys' method of trying to convict people of their sin, I think why it's ineffective is, again, because they're trying to do on the... Now, do we just allow people to live in whatever... It's like sin doesn't matter and doesn't matter what you do in your life and whatever. No. There is such thing as church discipline, right? There, Paul talks about these sort of things. There, there is a case. But that's not the primary job in evangelism. Your job... It's the role... Uh, let's just read together John 16... Um, in verse 7, and you may be about, around unbelievers whose lifestyle is completely and utterly antithetical to the, your lifestyle of the sort of being and the sort of person you're trying to grow into and to become and becoming more like Christ. Um, but if you focus on those issues, like for instance, and we all fall into this trap, right, where we start talking about with them issues about homosexuality or hot button cultural issues like transgenderism or other political things or uh, their particular recreational drug use or any sort of these moral elements, um, which would be sin in particular cases, if you get derailed with an unbeliever who you're trying to draw into the kingdom of God and you get derailed into talking to all those bits of the sin, you can be subtly fall into the trap of trying to do the work of that God's Holy Spirit does. Because it says in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, Jesus says. For if I don't go away, then the helper, the advocate, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him or it to you. And when it comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Did you see that? Who does that? Spirit. Who convicts the world concerning the sin and righteousness and judgment? The Spirit, right? Concerning uh, sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. 
and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus also said, if you flip over to John 7 real quick. So yeah, it's very clear. It's the Spirit's job that will be convicting them of sin. And they already, on some deep level, though it is suppressed, have moral knowledge and conscience of this, unless they have completely seared their conscience out. They have that speaking. They have a witness speaking into their heart already. John 7, 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know. So your job in, in the evangelism part with pre-Christians, then, my advice to you is don't focus on any of those things. That's downstream. The Spirit was already at work in their heart now, convicting them of sin. It's already, they're already feeling it in some level. You be the church. You be love. You be interaction. And if it's their will, if in their heart they choose and say, you know, not my will be done. I'm going to let go of this grip that I've been suppressing that conscience so much. And I'm going to let go enough to say, God, I, I want what you will, will to be done. Then they will know that this Christ teaching is from God. They will know. But what you don't have any hands or arms, like I can't reach inside of you and like a neuroscientist and push the button on your brain to make you will to do God's will. Just like I can't stop the severe alcoholic, right? What I can do is I can announce my beliefs on the matter. I can be a personal witness and a light. Uh, there's a host of things. I'm not saying do nothing, right? <laughs> well, what I am saying is don't be hypervigilantly focused on that sin to the degree that you're missing the broader picture. Of course sinners sin. They're an unbeliever, right? We should expect the unbelievers to be acting like unbelievers. Don't be expecting them to act like believers. Because they're not. And you guys are out here on the East Coast. You're not in the South, Southern Bible Belt, so maybe I'm preaching to the, you know, to the choir here. But Well, there's a saying in America, belong, believe, behave. Belong, believe, behave. But in Japan, this order, this typical order is kind of mi mixed up in Japan. See, in Japan, the typical order is first you belong because it's community. They're very group-oriented, group right? It's the us. And so we belong as part of this church. Then next comes behave. They start acting like Christians. They will come to the Bible studies. They will bring the Bibles. They will go through the motions. They will do the prayers. They will be part of the church life for years, on an average five to ten years, before finally belong, behave, then finally they actually believe it. Look, this is real. And, and not, just, not just that it's real, but I believe it. Because Japan, Japan is very comfortable with um, putting out a face. You know, there's a saying that they have that says, you have three hearts. You have the one that you hold in your mouth to show the world. And the heart here, you only show a few of your friends. And then you have your secret heart that only you know. And Japan is very comfortable with showing the heart in their mouth about church behavior and church life. With the secret heart, the belief comes last. In America, the order can be a little bit different, right? 
in, liberal, in a lot of liberal American churches, the order is just belong, belong, and belong. And that's it. <laughs> uh, anybody, everybody, completely welcome. No matter what you believe, whatever, no matter what you do, all bless, whatever. We will celebrate it. Just belong, belong, and belong. But in a lot of conservative churches, what's the order? It's usually first, you must believe. Belief first. What's most important is the truth and that you actually believe it. Then, because you believe it, we think your behavior will change. Behave, and you need to be living it. And only if you believe what we believe and you act like we say you're supposed to act, then you can belong here. Do you know what that feels like to non-Christians? That feels like conditional love. That feels like your acceptance upon them is conditioned upon whether or not they believe like you and whether or not they're going to behave according to your norms. And the human heart already knows that's gross. (laughs) But was that how God was? What did the scripture say? It said, while they were yet sinners. While they were still sinning. He loved them to the point He didn't send his son on the condition that they end up believing. And you better believe or else I'm not going to send him. First, first you believe first and get it right and then I'll send him. No, while they're still sinners, an unbelieving world, he sent his son to die for them. That's incredible. Incredible. How can we show the Father's heart like that to people that we meet? Because guess what? Shame and guilt motivation can control people to some degree, right? You can get people to do certain things or behave in a certain way through shame. Japan in the church and in Japan in the culture, it's very, you can get a lot done through shame because they're a shame and honor culture. But it only gets you so far. It will not actually transform and change that inner heart, the deepest one. Shame and guilt may control my external behavior in a way that we all get along and play church. And I play it right. But, it, but shame and guilt of focusing and wagging at people's sins will not change the deep heart. You know what will do that? Unconditional love. Grace. Undeserved, not just unconditional. You don't even deserve it. Grace is the greatest motivator for change. Let me say it again. Grace is the greatest motivator for you to actually change. Isn't that contradict what you kind of like assume it would be like, right? Well, then you think that if somebody just gives me the grace that I would just keep on sinning like that. No. No, they feel the pressure, the conviction of the Holy Spirit convicting them of their sin. They, They want, they're ordered and their hearts are meant to be called towards God. And to worship him. It's just when you give grace that you are loved, you are accepted, independent, and regardless of how it is that you're going to choose, whether, whether you choose Christ or not, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to love you, no matter what you end up on the end of this conversation. Whether you continue to do this behavior or you don't, I still accept you and I love you. Because God himself was not counting the sins of the world against them, but he was reconciling the world to himself. 
And I have that message. And I am an ambassador. So as an ambassador, with that message, think about the message again. Not counting their sins against them, it says. But a message of reconciliation. Offering grace. If it was the other way, guys, what's, what would the other message be? First behave, then you can belong in Christ Church. That's called works salvation. <laughs> and it's not the gospel. But we subtly can get there sometimes in our conversations. That's all I'm saying is beware. Beware of that and lean into that grace as a powerful motivator. The last bit, I'll be very quickly in this because I want to keep moving. Evangelism is not uselessly arguing with people, right? It's not the debate side. Now, I love that side. I'm sorry, that's my weakness. Lord, help me. I love apologetics. I have a master's degree in philosophy. So that's the sort of like life that, is, that you know, I get. But this is not evangelism. Apologetics, I think, is sort of a, can serve as a function of like pre-evangelism, paving the way in certain ways. But apologetics is not evangelism. It's not the same thing. Let's read together 2 Timothy chapter 2. And let's start in verse 23. I'm just going to start reading. 2 Timothy 2, 23. <clears throat> it says, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God, in the hope that who? What? In the hope that you shame them into changing their dang life. <laughs> what does it say? The hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So, not, evangelism is not uselessly arguing with people. Instead of the arguing, the traits that you should be having is kindness and a posture of teaching, gently instructing. So when you see these sort of... Um, the, the phrase that I use, so I used to run a uh, thing for like three years. We called it Two Beers Theology Club. Um, where we would just have two beers, and if it got more than that, it started to get two, so we just kept it at two beers, and it was all atheists and me. We would meet, and for about two years, I met once a week with these guys, and I had a rule, and the rule was we keep the ideas on the table. We say, okay, here's your idea. What are you saying? Okay, don't say that to me, at me, because I'm not the uh, person that you, whatever, like, we, we use labels, right? We say, you're and an errantist. And that's what you are. And we're arguing. And I say, okay, put the ideas on the table. Inerrancy is an idea. Let's put inerrancy, that idea, on the table. And let's talk about it. So you say no to this idea. I say this about this idea. But we're keeping the ideas on the table. It's not an argument like back and forth. Having that sort of posture, that's a posture that you can, with practice, maintain during the conversation. It's a skill that you can grow in of when you talk to someone, and we desperately need this in our country right now, the way things are becoming more and more polarized, not being, being, becoming incapable of talking to each other. We need to regrow in the skill of learning to talk about ideas distinct from persons. 
you're not, the totality of who you are as a person is not this idea. That's, that's the ideas we're talking about. Let's keep the ideas on the table. And when we do, that can create a posture to be like Timothy says, of, of teaching. Well, you're saying this about the idea, but actually, let me teach you this, because that's actually incorrect, I, I believe. So here's some more ideas I'm putting on the table, to, and we'll see how our ideas hash out here. But everything, the posture is going towards teaching, not foolish arguments. You see the difference? It's, it's powerful, because guess what? It's safe. Now, what does the atheist feel like who I'm talking to? They don't feel like my freaking personal worth is on trial here. They don't feel like I have to agree to the fact that I'm an idiot if I cede any ground to you. It's, I'm distinct from these ideas. And, oh yeah, if the ideas come, I could be a little objective, and my, my worth isn't on the line here, and I, I, I'm a little safer to actually cede some ground and agree or see it your way. But that takes... Um, intentionality on your part to maintain that posture to be like this says, gently instruct, teaching, kind. Because you know why? You're, you're hoping and praying that God will use these words that you're saying in your arguments. And the scripture did say, we persuade people. We're praying that God will use our persuasion as the means by which he will be granting them the repentance. God's going to grant them repentance and Calvin, may God bless his soul, um, <laughs> He did say one really good thing, at least, uh, that God uses means. He called it this doctrine of means. That God, in Calvin's view, God does all the work, right, and saves people. And I myself am not a Calvinist. I believe people can resist the work of the Holy Spirit. And there is an element of choice there. But he, Calvin was right in this, that God, in doing his work, uses means by which he does his work. God is the one granting them repentance, but the means he may use is maybe your arguments and your reason and your conversation. That's the means and the thing that God is using to work in their hearts. But you have to keep that straight in your head so that you realize God is the one doing this. So guess what? If it's the pressure's off me, then I won't become like angry or mad or forcing or, or any of that. All that's like out and I'm more peaceful and actually ends up being more effective. All right, well, we're going to cut off this episode here. Stay tuned for next week where we'll get into part three. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, uh, go back and listen to it. These sessions really do build upon each other, so it'll help you and also give Anderson's bio in part one. Also, if this episode spurred any thoughts of your own or questions, please come on to restitutio.org. You can find episode 316, What Evangelism Is Not, and leave a comment there. Just a couple of quick other announcements to mention. But before we do that, I'm happy to announce we got a new review. This review comes from R. Abrams89, who titled it Awesome and Thought Evoking. He writes, What a great podcast. This podcast delves deep into many concepts that we as Christians often question or wonder or simply just need more clarification on. Even the topics that are hard to talk about are addressed here because, like Sean says, the truth has nothing to fear. Why put limitations or boundaries on your faith? It's healthy to seek answers and to have questions. Why not do everything we can to learn as much as we can about God and His Son, Jesus Christ? And then he gave us five stars. Thank you so much. For that review, I really appreciate it. And those others of you who have already written in a review, 
on Apple Podcasts in particular, and as well as Stitcher. Thank you so much for doing that. It really does make a difference in exposure on these various search engines that people use to find podcasts. I've done my utmost to put as many search engine optimizing words in my description so that hopefully people can find Restitutio who have never heard of it before and get exposed to some of the things that we we get to talk about here. Uh, and so thank you to all of you who have who have done that. A couple of other quick announcements. One is that this is not actually even out on the official website yet, but I'm I have privileged information and I'm going to share it with you. So how about that? The Unitarian Christian Alliance has now set a date for the first conference, or as I like to call it, UCACon. And that's going to be October 16th to 18th in the Nashville, Tennessee area. This is going to be an exciting time for One God Believers to gather and to hear some presentations by a number of leading thinkers and theologians who are wrestling with different questions and putting forward different solutions to uh, who God and who Jesus are and how we can promote this truth in our world today. So uh, mark that on your calendars. There's no registration yet for this event, being that it's our our first time ever doing it. Uh, I am in the leadership of the UCA, and I'm very excited to participate in this conference. I'll be there. I hope to see many of you there as well, especially any of you who live in the Nashville area or within driving distance of that. And uh, I think it's just going to be such a great time of networking and fellowship and hearing some really bright thinkers. We're looking to bring in a guest speaker, uh, possibly from the other side of the world. That's all I'm allowed to say. Actually, I wasn't allowed to say that either, but I said it. So there it is. Yeah, put it on your calendar, October 16th to 18th. This is the first ever UCA Con, and I think it's just going to be awesome. While we're talking about conferences and events, I, I realize that Restitutio does not actually have its own event. I know. Insert insert sad music here. Aww. So I've been thinking about it, and I think it's time. I think maybe not 2020, but 2021, it's, it's time for Restitutio to have an event. And... Uh, you know, I'll speak and I'll get another speaker or two and we'll have a great time together. And here is my wild idea. And I'd love to hear your feedback on this. Any of you who are interested in attending. Restitutio Cruise. There it is. That's the whole idea. Uh, maybe a, a couple of meetings in the morning. The rest of the time you're on vacation and we're on a boat in the Caribbean, whatever. Bring your family, and let's have let's have vacation combined with theology in the mornings. What do you think? Is that an idea that you would get behind? Is are there practicality concerns that you have? Uh, would love to hear your feedback on this idea. On my calendar, I don't have any other ministry that's already doing a, an annual February cruise, but me living in upstate New York and the kids get off that week and it's like, man, why might as well just go on a boat and we can have some Bible meetings. We can do some theology, some church history. Uh, we can have some interaction and we can cruise. Why not cruise while we're doing that? Uh, why not enjoy blue skies and, and the sun and visiting cool places and evening entertainment and whatnot? 
while we're doing that. So that's the idea. Give me your feedback. would love to hear your thoughts on this subject as well. Also, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that now at restitutio.org, where you can give a one-time donation, a monthly donation, or an annual reoccurring donation. And uh, really, from the bottom of my heart, thanks to those of you who have already uh, donated it. It's going to help so much. My mic actually recently died, and I was using this backup mic, which I'm recording on right now. And this mic actually just failed earlier today when I was recording an interview. So I'm going to have to re-record my side of that interview, I guess, uh, because the other side turned out really well. You know, it's just such a hassle when these things happen. So I I am going to be buying a new microphone very soon and covering some other costs that I've just been floating on my own since 2015. Uh, But I really appreciate the help of those who have already helped and uh, those of you who are considering it. Thanks. We'll see you next week. And remember the truth has nothing to fear.